Twitter can be cacophonous at times. On any given day, serious analysis of the situation in Afghanistan, news stories about climate change, and Perry Grip's Music for Cat Piano Volume 1 can all compete for a user's attention. This has only become more clear during the COVID-19 pandemic as it seems almost everyone is tweeting about the disease with varying levels of expertise. However, there have been some experts who've been able to tweet through the noise, and we'll talk with one of them on this Royal Statistical Society edition of Stats and Stories, recorded for the RSS's annual meeting. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as panelists are John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Brian Taran, Editor of of Significance Magazine. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie Dean. Dean is an assistant professor in the Department of Biostatistics and Bioinformatics at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. Her primary research area is infectious disease epidemiology and study design, with a focus on developing innovative trial and observational study designs for evaluating vaccines during public health emergencies. She's previously worked on such diseases as Ebola and Zika and and now COVID-19. In addition to research, Dean's been active in public engagement during the COVID-19 pandemic, often authoring long Twitter threads to help educate people about the disease. She's also authored pieces and outlets such as the Washington Post, New York Times, and Stat News. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, Natalie, it's a it's a delight to have you join us. I, I, I want to take you back in time to, to, to find out what, what got you interested in studying infectious diseases and vaccines. I mean, I, I'm really tempted and I'm going to yield to the temptation. When were you first bitten by the bug? Oh, John. Ah! <laughs> it's, yeah. too it's, too, it's too early. No, I can't help it. Come on. <laughs> yeah, actually, high school. Um, so I was fortunate to take a class about infectious diseases in high school and we read The Hot Zone about Ebola. And then we also learned about HIV. And I just remember thinking about just the magnitude of those types of public health problems and realizing that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to help in whatever way I could. And when I went into undergrad, I was a biology major and I actually thought I would be a microbiologist. And I realized I really hated the lab, um, but I found I'm not good at those things. Uh, but um, I was introduced to biostatistics and started working on epidemiological study. And the, you know, the rest is history. I really um, realized that's what I like. So when I went into uh, grad school, I focused on HIV. And then when I came to University of Florida, that was when the Ebola epidemic in West Africa had started, and I got involved in projects there. And um, yeah, we've been we've been working on emerging pathogens ever since. So when you say you've been working on emerging pathogens, when, can you just sort of sketch out what does that mean to work on emerging pathogens, and what are some of the dimensions of the problems that you that you deal with? Yeah, absolutely. So so it really for me started with working on Ebola, and so um, when I arrived at University of Florida, I got involved working on a phase three Ebola vaccine trial in Guinea, and it used an innovative uh, trial design. So it used this ring vaccination approach, which is this sort of flexible trial design where you it's a cluster randomized design. So you have these individuals who are these new cases of Ebola. And then the cluster is the people, the contacts and the contacts of contacts around that individual. And then those units were then randomized. And that was the way that we were able to evaluate the efficacy of that vaccine, which is now licensed. 
And so after that, the WHO recognized that there was a lot more we could do in advance of epidemics to be prepared to evaluate new vaccines and um, and diagnostics and therapeutics. And so um, they formed this WHO Research and Development Blueprint Initiative. And so um, and so it was a group of experts that I was part of and uh, are still still I'm a part of and uh, you know thinking about all these prioritized pathogens. Um, so loss of fever, um, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, Marburg uh, is a list of pathogens and kind of how would we evaluate new vaccines? What are the you know best practices? How can we tailor um, clinical trial design strategies to work in these very unpredictable resource limited settings? And so, um, and so we've been thinking very generally about these types of infectious diseases because some of the problems that come up are similar. Like it can be very unpredictable where, you know, epidemics are going to take off or outbreaks are going to take off. COVID's a little different because it's really everywhere. But for some of the other things like Ebola, Nipah, you know, these, these, these sort of these outbreaks that burn really hot in particular locations, um, there's a spatial and temporal dimension we've been very focused on. So we worked on Zika, I've been thinking about Lhasa, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, all this stuff. And then, and then COVID hit and that's really occupied everyone's attention for the last year and a half. And Natalie, when did COVID come onto your radar and, and at what point in time was it that you started to feel that, you know, this could be a, a problem, this could be a, a pandemic? Yeah, well, so um, I'm so I'm sort of part of two communities, right? I'm part of this biostatistics community, and then I'm also part of an infectious disease community, research community. And I, so I follow a lot of folks on Twitter um, in the infectious disease community, community. So, you know, there was a really early like ProMed mail uh, warning that came out. And I remember seeing that. And I remember everyone starting to, you know, a little uh, talking about that in sort of early January. And, and the moment that I knew it was serious was... Uh, well, there's kind of two moments. So one is when China shut things down. And I thought, wow, well, if they're doing that, they're, they're seeing something on the ground that is really serious. And then the second moment, I mean, the really big moment, I think, was when Italy, the epidemic started to take off in Italy. And so, you know, as with the WHO, there were, there were discussions um, really early on. I remember our blueprint working group kind of came together uh I, I don't know if it was late January, early February, but sometime we started talking about, you know, vaccine study design, things like that. And um, so, uh, so yeah, but for me, Italy was really that moment where I thought, oh, well, it's coming here, you know, yeah. and we should uh, you plan accordingly. And some, obviously, one of the reasons we wanted to, to have you uh, on the show was to talk about your experience in communicating science and statistics during the pandemic so you know obviously you, you've got this this pandemic happening there's a, you know, a lot of um, pressure on your time I guess to uh, be doing your, your your work on the on the pandemic what when was it that you realized uh, that you you had something to contribute to the public debate and that you wanted to get involved actively to uh, help people understand what we were going through yeah well actually I was on maternity leave when the pandemic started. So I, you know, I had my second child in December. And so I, you know, I was coming back in March. And so in February, when things are really taking off, I was taking care of a small baby. And so I wasn't, you know, I was involved in some research. Like I remember, you know, working on some reviewing paper drafts and reviewing things a little bit during nap time, but I didn't have a ton of time. It was mostly, mostly, but I realized that Twitter was a way to stay involved um, because I had this set of, 
expertise and experience. I mean, I had a sort of a frame of reference for certain things. Like I remember the discussions about, you know, evaluating new treatments and thinking about, oh, we have this frame of reference for MERS. We have this frame of reference for SARS. Like we have this experience with, you know, other emerging pathogens and I can help interpret the results and help people understand. And it really appealed to my, um, I liked, I like teaching and I like infectious diseases and infectious disease dynamics. And it was a way to, so it started off very much about teachings, like little bits of explainers. But then I think it did, it did evolve and peer review, public peer review became a really big thing because we had this rise in preprints and everyone's trying to digest information very quickly. And I think people also didn't, you know, it's hard to understand just how poor of quality early data are that come, you know, that come out of China, you know, when case definitions are evolving and there's this huge amount of missing data because there were, you know, barely any tests. And so I also felt another role was to kind of explain the limitations of studies and try and help people think scientifically about how, you know, the, the quality and the biases and how to piece this information together. Um, and, and Twitter was a, was, has been a great forum for that. And there were a lot of people on there being very active. Have you noticed particular threads you've done that have picked up steam more quickly than others and have an idea about, you know, what might people be finding appealing in them? Yeah. So it's, you know, a mix of things. Certainly I really like the educational content. I like explaining, you know, the concepts and how to kind of think about how we define vaccine efficacy, how, you know, what are the limitations of studies? uh, What are, um, you know, these, these sort of different fundamental concepts and to break those down. What goes viral, what people really like, there's anything that's a little controversial, you know, and I I think that's, that's true. And so, you know, when you do this sort of public peer review, and you're critical of something, I don't know, Twitter, Twitter loves a bit of an argument. So, um, so, so, (laughs) which is, you know, a little unfortunate that that's what is sell you know, that is what gets rewarded uh, a bit. And, and that's something that has turned me off at times from, <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, the, anything that's a bit critical or controversial can also get, get more attention. Yeah. One thing I've really appreciated about your tweets have been the way you use visualizations at times. I think there was one involving Legos at one point, And I just felt like, that's such a space where, you know, if you can visually be fluent and, and communicate visually, like that's a way of getting a message out. And I just really have appreciated seeing that in, in the tweets. I was going to say the work you do there, but I was like, the tweets you publish. I know, I know. What is it? What is it even exactly? Yeah, I'm, I am a, a very visual learner, extremely visual. Learner. I'm, ac- I'm also, um, I'm a, a visual artist too. I mean, I really like to paint. And so, so it, it sort of intersects a few different things, but I'm a very visual learner. And I remember there were some results that had come out from Astros and AstraZeneca trial, one of their, their Oxford trials. And people were trying to understand this result that was a bit confusing. And I ended up making this highlighter sketch. And I have the highlighters here. I actually just found that I was clean, going through my files and I found the paper. And if people saw just how quickly I did some of these things, it was truly like 10 minutes of just making a little, a little sketch. And that went really viral because it really helped people. I think it, it, you know, 
I'm such a, yeah, I'm such a visual person and it's hard for me sometimes to hear certain concepts. So when I see them, it becomes very clear. And I think that, you know, people learn different ways. So that, that sort of hit a nerve with people in a, in a good way. And then someone suggested turning it into using Duplos. I was like, that is the best idea I've ever heard. I have a three-year-old and so we have plenty of Duplos around the house and I ended up kind of take stealing them away just long enough for him not to notice and took them outside and I took some pictures and people really like that um and so and so that's been fun too for you know to um find different things that, that resonate with people you're listening to stats and stories at the Royal Statistical Society's annual meeting our guest today is Emory University's Natalie Dean you know, I, I, I love this this sort of dual mission that I've heard in, in your response, this idea of exposition of concepts, trying to help people understand that, but also, you know, kind of shaping and framing and contextualizing study results. And I, you know, and one of the things that you posted, you talked about, you know, this idea of serving as a guardrail for interpreting studies. And I, I, I thought that was a, a really wonderful image. And I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about kind of what are, what's part of being a guardrail here. Yeah, well, I remember in this last spring, I did a podcast interview on Slate and the host, Lizzie O'Leary, she brings this up, you know, regularly on Twitter that I said something that really resonated with her, which is that science is a process, you know, the public doesn't usually see that process playing out in time and how that is an evolving process and our understanding is evolving. And, you know, instead, I think Sometimes people, reporters, the, you know, the public tend to think that kind of the most recent study is the most reliable one when really what we want to communicate is, okay, the most recent one still has some set of limitations. It still needs to be balanced against all of the other studies that have come out. And how do we think scientifically about integrating those together? So, so if something conflicts with laboratory studies or if it conflicts with prior evidence from another place, how do we then sort of put a little star star on that until it can be confirmed, you know, until until those results make more sense. So, you know, trying to help people there, trying to really help people understand the limitations. I mentioned data quality. Um, now that there are a lot of vaccine studies, helping people understand just, you know, the potential for biases and in, in confounding and and so you have, you know, you have a point estimate and a confidence interval, but I add a little bit more on top in my mind because there's just, there's, there's just a wider, you know, that's what you've measured, but the, there's just this unmeasured part that, and so um, helping people understand the limitations there and, and yeah, people get very fixated on point estimates. And so making sure people understand kind of the range of uncertainty. Natalie, what was it like to, um, I guess evolve your contribution to uh, stats communication from you know from Twitter to uh, I think it was on your website it said uh, April eleventh, twenty twenty was your your first newspaper article, uh, and it was in the Washington Post. I mean that's a you that's know, a huge <laughs> that's a huge place to publish your first newspaper article. I'm, I think my first newspaper article was in the Barking and Dagenham Post, <laughs> which is a much smaller scale, but. You know, what was that? What was that experience like? You know, whether it was try, you know trying to find a way to communicate the ideas in a different media, or, or working with editors and not you know having the full control like you would over over your Twitter output. Yeah, it was exciting. So I was contacted by an editor, and they sort of was pitched a story, and but it was something that was born out of something I had been tweeting about. Um, so the first thing I wrote in the Washington Post was about 
the need for randomized clinical trials to evaluate new therapeutics. That was back in the hydroxychloroquine debate days. Like, do we have time to wait? Just give it all we got. We have nothing to lose. And it was this, the slow down. We need to see what really works. And so explaining that sort of scientific process to people and, and that was a lot of uh, fun. I mean, it's, it's a, it's kind of an intensive process, a different process. The, the pace is very fast. Um, the turnaround times are really fast, but you know, there's nothing like a great editor. And it's really fun to hear from people who uh, have a lot of experience, you know, writing these things for broad distribution and can show you exactly what you're, you know, what you, you've done wrong and, and really show you, show you the way. And I remember one of the big things I learned was, make your point very quickly up front, okay? Because you really have a limited time to kind of capture people's attention. And so don't, you know, bury the lead, right? Like you, you, you need, your point needs to be made very quickly. And, uh, and so, yeah, that, that's been fun. So I've worked with a number of uh, different people. So I've also done some stuff in the New York Times. And so learned about like fact checking and all the, you know, it was very intensive. It was actually funny one time they, I got fact checked on something. It was, I used the word field trial to refer to a type of vaccine trial and um, that's in the field. And they came back to me and said, well, oh, the WHO says blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, you actually just sent me something I wrote, <laughs> which was for- <laughs> uh, 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 so, so that was, that uh, at least made me feel more confident that I was not in the totally wrong place, you know, that I, but it's can be challenging. It's a lot of exposure. It's a lot of pressure to kind of get the message right. And that can come with its own stress. And I remember- getting a lot of, you know, mostly good, but sometimes you do get, you know, negative feedback. And it's just from everyone on the internet now feels that they should be emailing you directly about everything. And um, so, you know, so that I think also (laughs) need a little bit of fortitude as well to to deal with that. If I could follow up, I mean, you've really been very successful in your communication efforts. And I I would be interested to hear what kind of uh, lessons you've learned and what kind of communication tips you might have for us. And and I'm wondering if, and, and as part of that, if you could think of, are there distinctions that you'd make for communicating in a, to a, in a public way or to maybe a, in, through the media? I mean, are there sort of any other distinctions? So just general tips. Yeah, um, that's a great question. So Twitter is different from talking to reporters, is different from going on TV or doing podcasts or radio or writing op-eds. I mean, they all have a little bit of different, th- you know, it kind of, some of it depends on your level of the effort you want to, to put in. And talking to reporters is something I like because it's uh, not a huge investment of time, and but it's something that I can sort of contribute to distilling things down. And, and I would say one of the key challenges with um, stati- well, okay, statisticians, we like to think about the study methods. We like to think about, you know, uh, all the things that kind of go into the science of figuring things out. Whereas reporters really want to know, like, what does it mean in the end? And, and so you kind of have to be ready to answer that question. And you also have to be keeping on top of what's going on, which is challenging because they also want to know how it fits into everything else. And that is tricky because it's just, it's like a fire hose of information. So it's like, you know, a whole other activity just to try and stay, stay on top of everything. I, you know, t- Twitter, I think allows for, right, a lot of different opportunities to, to communicate with people. I mean, 
Uh, one thing I like to do is kind of read through an article and pick out what I find most interesting, just recognizing that a lot of people aren't going to read the article. And so they kind of want, you know, it's sort of like you're filtering information through you and you picking out what you think is most interesting is, is notable just because you have this set of, you know, expertise. And so kind of filtering things through. And then I don't know, I just, I try not to say something unless I really have something to say. Um, otherwise it's just noise. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a great topic. Is that how you avoid getting too sucked into the sort of Twitter arguments that there are out there? You know, just keep focus. If- yeah, well, I, you know, that's another challenge because it is a professional mm-hmm. medium. And I, you know, you have to recognize that if this is your professional profile, you are followed by your professional colleagues and act accordingly yeah. because the lines with social media can get blurry, but I, it's probably prudent to, to, to treat it as a, as a, you know, professional, it's a way for people to see your personality. I think, I mean, it's a way for people to understand a little about you. Like sometimes I'll mention, you know, I have kids or sometimes I'll mention just other things I'm thinking about, but, um, but in the end it is, it is still a, a, a professional medium. Yeah. I, I wonder Natalie, now that you have these various experiences working with and in media, if you have advice for journalists who are trying to cover I can't remember what the term was that you used, emerging infectious diseases or whatever, whether it's COVID, which sort of seems kind of this anomalous thing or something like Ebola or Zika. If you have thoughts on how, you know, they could work to ensure they're covering it as well as they can. Yeah, well, you know, I've met a lot of great reporters. I wouldn't deign to say I, you know would have a lot of advice for them and know how to, some, some people have been, you know, working in the, on this beat for a long time too. And they're really, uh, such professionals. They're, you know, I think just because the, the amount of COVID reporting has skyrocketed, the m- number of sort of infectious disease reporters has skyrocketed. So it's been a lot of people who've had to kind of learn on the job. You know, I guess sort of expertise and experts. And I do feel like there is sometimes this, you know, and I say this as someone who's on Twitter and I know that like people have contacted me because I'm on Twitter, but making sure that people are kind of finding the, the right people to contact the people with really the, sometimes there, I have a lot of colleagues who are not on Twitter, who are mega experts, obviously. And, um, and so one thing I have tried to do is redirect a lot of people to names they might not know, and then they can develop, develop those relationships. I'm just thinking as like Brian, I started very, very small. And if I was a reporter who had had to start covering this suddenly at my tiny news outlet, it would have been sort of a struggle to figure out how to like move through all of the information and data. Yeah, well, actually, okay, so I was on the board of advisory board for COVID, the COVID tracking project. And, you know, there were a number of things that we discussed there. And, you know, one of it is, is about empowering local newsrooms to be able to understand the data there, you know, to really digest, um, the, the local data. Cause there's a lot of complexity, like, um, how do they define test positivity? How are things, if you really dig into it, it's, it's extremely complicated. So that was one thing we talked about is like having teaching set, some sort of resource available for local reporters, data reporters, um, data journalists to help you know, at least be able to process the information and understand the limitations as well. I, sort of as a as kind of a complimentary question to, to that is, uh, is, is preparing statisticians to work 
with with journalists or preparing statisticians to engage publicly with these with some of these questions? What what other advice might you give? Yeah, I would say. Uh... Well, Sir David Spiegelhalter has done an excellent job providing, you know, um, guidance. These sort of, and so I'd recommend that people people look through that. There's some really um, great tips. I mean, I think what I would, you know, one of the big things is understanding the subject matter, you know, really deeply. And I, you know, that's just one of the persistent challenges is that you, you can't really be just, uh, you know, sort of just have statistical expertise, you also have to have enough of the subject matter expertise to be able to, to um, uh, talk about it, you know, intelligently. And um, yeah, I mean, I think figuring out your main message, um, you know, focusing on just a few main messages, using a lot of examples, figuring out, you know, uh, like metaphor or analogy, like figuring out ways to explain things that, that resonate with people, um, bringing it back to to kind of what's going to impact their daily lives. I mean, that's what people are really interested in. So recognizing the things you are interested in may, are can be different from the things that reporters are interested in, the things that readers are interested in, and trying to at least find the intersection there. And if in doubt, remember, Lego is a much underused method of statistical communication. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Lego is forever. Well, that's, yeah. all, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Natalie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Natalie. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you to the Royal Statistical Society annual meeting attendees who joined us for this conversation. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. For the latest news on the podcast, you can also follow us, as I said, on Twitter at Stats and Stories. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.